I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. So, with the 2020 census results are finally out, have you had a chance to study them? I sit around all the time, dying for census data. Um, but you know, it's, is this like an assignment that I had? Do I have to do it? Did I have to do it this week in particular? Did you do your assignment or did you not? <laughs> I'm not. I'm going to no comment that like my son usually does when I ask him about his own work. Well, uh, if you had done your assignment, if you had studied the census results, you would be aware that the U.S. has become more diverse and is expected to continue the trend, uh, which is consistent with earlier predictions. And that that's true, not just in urban areas, but in rural areas also. Did you know that, Whitney? I know that from looking out the window in my neighborhood, which is much more diverse, and, and it's a neighborhood that I grew up in, you know? I mean, you can see those changes, I think, everywhere in America. Um, there are some issues, though, even with, the, even, even with the census delivering that extremely interesting information that is also can be verified by looking out your window. I, the black and Hispanic populations were undercounted, it, it turns out, right? So, and once again, the non-Hispanic white population was overcounted. I'm shocked. So, I don't know where we're going. I'm shocked. Yeah. Tune into the virtual book channel for my shocked face if you are an audio listener only. Uh, so even rural areas could potentially be more diverse than is shown in the 2020 census. And I bet conservative politicians would be celebrating right about now, but the Census Bureau noticed the discrepancy and assigned recounts. I like the Census Bureau. They seem, I just... It's a really important thing that we do. And every year I'm really excited about it. And I was really nervous, you know, that, that Trump was going to screw the census up somehow. But it seems like he really he wanted was trying to. so hard. He, he tried, tried to so blow hard. up the post office, tried, you know, but anyway, I just I just love that. One of the things that I think is important about America is that we we have decent data and they're not friendly to the voter suppressing right. 
it's um it's very exciting that we're now this conversation makes us the number one nerdiest podcast um but this topic does have me wondering if the country is becoming more diverse even more diverse than the 2020 census originally depicted i'm kind of curious about what this data predicts about the future of fiction and specifically fiction in and of and from rural places definitely and that's what we're going to talk about today we want to talk about what rural fiction might look like in the year 2050 30 years from now, or, you know, 29. Later in the episode, we'll talk to poet Damaris B. Hill. But first, we're going to talk to Julia Elliott. Julia's writing has appeared in Tin House, The Georgia Review, Conjunctions, The New York Times, Granta Online, and other publications. She's the winner of a Rona Jaffe Writers Award, and her stories have been anthologized in the Pushcart Prize, Best of the Small Presses, and Best American Short Stories. Her debut story collection, The Wilds, was chosen by Kirkus, BuzzFeed, Book Riot, and Electric Literature as one of the best books of 2014. It was also a New York Times book review editor's choice. Her first novel, the new and improved Ronnie Futch, was published in October 2015. She teaches English and women and gender studies at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, where she lives with her daughter and husband. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are things in South Carolina? Um, well, today, it finally, we had our cold, much long-awaited cold snap to yeah. like, cl- clear away the like stagnant, disgusting, <laughs> humid weather. In our show today, we're going to be taking the most recent census as our cue to imagine what rural fiction might look like 30 years from now in 2050, when who knows what the weather will be like in South Carolina. Um, your stories are set almost exclusively in rural South Carolina. They often take place somewhere outside the small city of Aiken or reference places like Lake Marion or Fox Creek High School. Some descriptions might lead readers who know South Carolina, and I am not one of them, uh, to the conclusion that the setting of a given story is the Midlands, where others clearly indicate low country. How did growing up in South Carolina influence your fiction? Okay, well, I would like to say that in my first collection, Definitely over half of the stories take place in South Carolina, but there are some other wild ones that are just in like weird places um, that are not even in the South. Um, And then the novels in South Carolina too. Um, And then my last round of stories, which are not yet published in book form, but have been published in various journals. A lot of those don't take place in the South. I have had two stories in Best American Short Stories, and one of them, Hellion, we'll talk about today, is a very South Carolina story. But then the other story, Bride, takes place in a medieval monastery, not monastery, sorry, convent, and it's basically a magic realist story that takes place in a medieval convent, so very different from the Southern stories. But nevertheless, I'm definitely influenced by the culture of the South that I grew up in. Um, my parents were both from the low country of, the South, of South Carolina, and my father was an elementary school principal who moved us around a bit, and so I've lived in like three different small towns from different parts of the state uh, the Low Country, Aiken, South Carolina, Hampton, South Carolina, the Low Country, where a some high-profile murders have just happened, um, and then Aiken, South Carolina, and then um, there's also uh, 96 South Carolina, which is a little bit in the upper part of the state, I guess, and then there's also Columbia, South Carolina, the Midlands, where I live now, and so I'm definitely influenced by the culture. I feel that I will always have what I call an inner hick inside of me that I will never get rid of. And I'm very influenced by the ecology of the South, the oppressively humid but rich 
low country weather, for example, the shrieking insects, the cicadas, the Spanish moss, the swampy terrain. I even joke that maybe like the swamps are full of these weird endemic brain parasites and I've been infected with one and it's given me what my father used to call a hyperbolic condition so that I always exaggerate. But at the same time, when I was growing up, I was always an outsider and a weirdo. Like I never belonged in any of these tiny towns. And my dad was kind of a weirdo himself. He has like half of a PhD basically, and then he became a principal. He wanted to be an academic, but he had four kids, so he had to like get a job, so he became a principal. He like encouraged me to read Dostoevsky in middle school. I don't know if that was good for me or not. But I always like kind of approached life from an outsider's perspective. And I was also kind of strange looking. I was like really pale and freckly and red haired. And all the Southern people like really emphasize getting a tan and spending your entire day like beside bodies of water, like tanning yourselves with weird concoctions like Coca-Cola and baby oil. I did try to do that, but I would be like hellishly burned. And so I didn't fit in with that like side either. So like physically was kind of <laughs> considered freakish and strange. And so I guess like my outsider status as an observer definitely like influences the way that I look at um, these communities through my fiction. It's so interesting. Like you have a Southern aesthetic, but it's your, it's your own aesthetic and not perhaps the predominant one. And so your work also blends genres and subverts in really interesting ways reader expectations of what I think, you know, rural fiction is and can be. The New York Times review of the new and improved Ronnie Futch calls you uh, Flannery O'Connor for the data mining age, such a great phrase. And another reviewer describes your novel as flowers for Algernon as imagined by George Saunders. And there is no doubt that the narrator of the novel sounds postmodern despite his, uh, and heavy air quotes here, redneck qualities. What inspired you to write in the voice of a postmodernist? Well, I've always kind of struggled between like my academic self and what I call my inner hick. So I was born in a small town. I lived in small towns, but I also went through an MFA program and a PhD program. I am a professor in an academic like environment who uses all the critical theory jargon and I use it in my classes. And so I wonder what would it be like if you how how could you have like a rural person that was somehow equipped with this analytical apparatus. Like, what, how would they see the world if suddenly their mind was expanded? And then I became obsessed with, like, brain downloads because maybe around, like, say, 2008, a lot of... Uh, I, I was actually teaching a dystopian lit class at the University of South Carolina, and every day I would bring my students three factoids, and one would be uh, fake and two would be real. And I would be searching for like futuristic sounding tidbits that were real. And there was a lot of stuff out there about brain downloads. And so it made me think what would happen if like one of these people that I grew up with suddenly was equipped with like the equivalent of a humanities PhD within a month, like how would their view toward the world change? So I feel like in some way, Romy Futch like helps me, helped me sort of meld these conflicting aspects of my myself because I am still a small town person who was terrified my first few days of graduate school at Penn State University where I got my MFA. I remember going to a critical theory or literary theory class and just thinking that they were speaking gibberish and I would never be able to understand what they were even saying. But then eventually I get sort of initiated into the world of academia and I feel alienated from both worlds. But somehow Romy Futch gave me this language 
that I could, with which I could access kind of both from these weird vantage points. And, um, and I feel like that, that hybrid voice enabled me to grapple with the complexities of contemporary, what you might call postmodern Southern existence. I, I haven't kept up. Barry Hanna is dead. I haven't kept up on Barry Hanna's yeah. like a reputation as a person, but I do know his work. And, and I, ha, I always think back to him as being somebody who's, who did this at an early time. You know, Airships is a really interesting story collection. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. I've read most of uh, his work um, and was influenced by it like at, at a certain period. Like there's some Southern writers that I haven't read. Like I, I have only read a few Faulkner things and people are like, what? You know, how, how could you? And I don't really love Flannery O'Connor, but I like Eudora Welty a lot. And uh, um, Carson McCullers would be like my favorite kind of classic Southern writer. But I do remember Airships like has like just a straight up weird dystopian story about roving bands of kind of post-apocalyptic people or something. Yeah, I had I went to my bookshelf and somebody took my Airships book. It made me so mad when yeah, I was preparing for this. I must have given it to a student. Uh, but then he can write a, a perfectly, like he writes these nostalgic stories that are also based on his weird college days that have nothing to do with like genre, you know. Like Geronimo Rex is like that. Yeah. But Eating Wife and Friends is the story from Airships and another one called Escape to Newark that were sort of futuristic That's post-apocalyptic right, yeah. stories that he was writing. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention him because yeah. I think that there's there's strains of him that is are in George Saunders and, you know, people. Yeah. It's interesting to see connections between work like that. So on the note of genre bending, your fiction has been labeled magical, dystopian, Southern Gothic with spin, strange, realism, fantasy. I'm using these are all quotes put together. Satire, futuristic, technological, dark, hilarious and an endangered species. I, I have another friend who writes about life in rural Missouri, uh, Daniel Woodrell, who really he's been called like country noir and he, he really dislikes labels. Right. And so how do you relate to the label of being a Southern writer or these other labels that people try to put on you to sort of, I noticed earlier in, the, in your talk, you were like, well, I don't only write about South Carolina. I mean, are you worried about being a Southern writer? Not, or well, writer? I mean, I feel like it's easier for them to market people with, with that kind of regionalism, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I don't mind as long as like I can get published. <laughs> <laughs> but then I always have genre bending associated with it. So it's not considered straight up Southern Gothic or anything like that. I feel like these days the the sort of boundaries between like so-called literary fiction and genre fiction have definitely collapsed and a lot of writers are just moving here and there to tell stories in whatever way they can to best capture what they're trying to convey. And so I see genres as tools that I can use um, and combine to tell whatever I need to tell and especially to describe complicated realities um, of today's world. Um, even if I am writing about the South, rural or not. Um, and Southern people even who live in the, the hinterlands of like the South and these seemingly disconnected places, they're all like on the internet and they also may find it hard to distinguish between science and science fiction and conspiracy and reality. And their very realities are sort of blurred the same way, you know, people blur genre boundaries. Um, also, whenever I went to grad school, I wasn't really immersed in Southern fiction at all. I went to Penn State, and my favorite professor was an experimental writer named Paul West. And I was like reading Franz Kafka and Angela Carter. And so it was like, oh, here's a new breed of surrealism. Here is fairy tale retellings. You can do that. Amazing. And then I uh, was reading like um, magic realism for the first time. 
and like writers like Leonore Carrington, like a pretty hardcore surrealist. And then a little bit later, George Saunders completely blew my mind and uh, because of the way that he used dystopian tropes with a kind of colloquial voice. And so I realized, you know, I was just really attracted to people who, to more experimental or innovative approaches. I mean, we've picked you for this episode or our, my student, Hayden Baker, who picked you for this episode because this is his idea and it's a great idea, you know, because in fact, we, you know, we think that we, I think, I think he thinks that that experimental and sort of moving between genres is what rural fiction is moving toward. Yeah. Instead of, you know, writing about, you know, being a farmer or whatever, do you agree? But we should ask you rather than saying that we think that that's what it is. Well, if you're writing about being a farmer, it would definitely be a new kind of farmer. Because on the one hand, you have like uh, so-called old school farmers who have highly industrial approaches. Like I have relatives who, you know, they use, they, they plant Roundup Ready corn and drench their fields in toxins and then like that, that sort of thing. But then you also have jaded city people moving to rural areas and starting organic farms, including my husband. So like we have land in Swansea, South Carolina, which is about 40 minutes away from Columbia, it's incredibly rural, and he's doing, like, organic farming out there. And then, of course, we have fantasies about, like, building a cabin and spending more time there. And so, just like all those people who, like, fled New York City during the pandemic and moved to upstate New York with some kind of fantasies of the rustic, idyllic life. <laughs> Although we did this long before the pandemic. Um, and so in that way, like, things change as well. Julia, I wonder if you could read us a section from your book. Okay, did you want me to provide a little context first, right? So um, this is from the new and improved Romy Futch. And after Romy Futch, who was down on his luck, he's basically a down-on-his-luck taxidermist. Um, he participates in an intelligence enhancement study at a research center in Atlanta called the Center for Cybernetic Neuroscience. And he basically has a PhD's worth of humanities lore downloaded into his brain. And so he goes back to his hometown with all of this intellectual baggage and attempts to save his failed marriage and revolutionize his taxidermy dioramas into like postmodern masterpieces. Um, so the section that I'm going to read you happens after he's returned and he becomes obsessed with bagging this perhaps uh, biotech mutant hog that is ravaging the landscape and all these hunters are obsessed with it. So I'm going to read a little section about hog hunting in the dystopian south. I stayed up all night googling feral hogs, whereas domesticated swine were sweet wilbers Bred for docility, all it took was a few weeks in the wild to transform these corn-fed fatsos into snorting, murderous monsters. Their regression to wild beast was almost instantaneous. Bristly black hair burst from their tender skins. Razor-sharp tusks shot from their foaming jaws. Add to this a high IQ and an all-consuming food obsession, and you've got a wily fiend ready to rip up whatever landscape it happens to rage through, ready to tear its cutters into whatever warm body it stumbles upon, nostrils on high alert for the scent of estrus sow. All across the south, these porcine demons were raising hell. Thousand-pound monster tusker bag near Cartusa, Georgia, read one headline, Pigfoot, Downed in Asheboro, North Carolina, said another. In Texas, the feral hog population was off the charts, well into the range of epidemic. In an article titled, Texas Succumbs to Pig Plague, wax poetic while slyly alluding to a Guns N' Roses LP. 
Feral hogs spawn like rabbits, producing up to two liters, litters per year. Uh, droves of fierce tushers not only tear up farmland, but also trot boldly through suburbs in groups more than 20 strong. They snuffle through trash, root up sprinkler systems, devour all small animals in their path. Their appetite for destruction is bottomless. The Texas Parks and Wildlife Department had declared open season, going so far as to legalize helicopter hunting, allowing gung-ho Rambos to take out swine from the air. There were documented cases of people being bitten, a handful of dismemberments, a few deaths. Nine-year-old boy in Roxy, Mississippi, torn apart by Razorback, proclaimed one paper. According to the article, the boy's bones were picked clean by a frenzied group of sows. The mullet wrapper described the brutal end of a hunter in the Everglades who was pounded to pulp by a herd of apocalyptic porkers. The feral hog population in South Carolina, somewhere around 200,000, was just beginning to become a nuisance. According to the Clemson Extension, which had started conducting hog management workshops, the worldwide swine menace must be nipped in the bud. In addition to declaring open season with no bag limit, the Department of Natural Resources now sponsored special hog hunts twice a year. I discovered that my old rival, Baines Botworth, had cornered the market on trophy boarheads, featuring a tusked monster with a mouthful of fake foam on his taxidermy website. And all this time I'd been oblivious, puttering in a dream of self-obsession and heartbreak. I hadn't updated my website in four years, but no more. Adrenaline gushed through my veins. I sat at my desk, clutching my grandfather's old savage rifle, surfing the hinterlands of the internet, my bloodshot eyes glimmering like Ahab's when he scanned the sea for a telltale spume. At last, I stumbled upon the message board of wildhog.com, a regional pig hunting website where full-fledged Hogzilla obsession had broken out. Hiding behind monikers like pig man and bored to death, hunters voiced their mania. They spread half-truths and trafficked in myth-mongering. They dropped helpful tips and red herrings. Many of them posted in the wee hours a dead giveaway of their obsessive tendencies. I could see them, dressed in muddy camo, hunched over their computer screens. I could hear the click of their calloused fingers on plastic keys. Could smell their whiskey breath, their unwashed hair, the hog-attracting scents they wore like rare perfumes, swine wine, Apple Delight, Feral Fire, Sow and Heat Spray. Thank you so much. I think that passage is such a great example of how your work has reinvented rural fiction. You said previously, and I'm, I'm quoting here from an interview you did with Tin House. I love this quote so much. In the past, Southern writers have been fetishized as holy fools, semi-feral backwoods prophets that give voyeurs a glimpse of the wilderness below the Mason-Dixon line. Even today, readers sometimes forget that Southern writers inhabit the same technologically complex world they do. Your fiction often explores this intersection between technology and rural places, sometimes to the point of futurism. So I'm really curious, you know, what you think rural fiction will look like 30 years from now, given the role that technology plays in some of your work. Yeah, I mean, I feel like both the rural places themselves have changed and rural writers like are onto genre bending and experimental prose and they no longer feel confined to be, you know, Southern Gothic writers or Appalachian noir writers or whatever. So, you know, rural writers are usually people who have left their town and become another person. 
um, influenced by academic institutions and other social environments. And they often read widely and have access to the same writing that any other writers do, like hardcore science fiction writers or um, you know, horror writers or whatever. And so they realize that they can use these tropes to tell complex, the complex stories that they need to tell. So I feel like there will be less pressure to play the backwoods prophet to pretend like they themselves are of the land, you know, that they're more complex than that. Um, and then I feel like the rural places themselves um, will change as well. Like um, some rural places are edged out by industrial spaces becoming more like blatantly dystopian. Others are edged out by exurbia. And then again, I, as I already mentioned, like college educated people are fleeing cities and moving back. Uh, to rural places where land is cheap and taxes are low to experiment with like organic farming and things like that. And then of course you also have like demographic changes with like, you know, ethnicity uh, changing these places as well. And so the, the rural places themselves become more complex and it's harder to sort of uh, capture these complexities with like straight up kind of realistic fiction, I feel. Although I do feel that realistic fiction can still do that. But a lot of it even like taps into genres like crime fiction or, you know, like there's a genre called Appalachian noir that definitely is not exactly realism. So, um, and so I feel like they will probably become more open to experimenting with genre, but not necessarily bound to that. And I feel like writers are capable now of like, you can write a realistic story one day if you feel like it. And then if you feel like writing a horror story or telling a, uh, a story about like a rural place through the horror genre or something, you can do that too. And because these like, uh, the binary of like serious literary fiction and genre fiction has been deeply challenged for the past 20 years, then I feel like most writers are aware of that and take advantage of that. So Julia, you've previously referred to your 2014 short story collection, The Wild is a Feminist Collection. And in fact, almost all of those stories feature women as protagonists. And I could be wrong, but it seems like we've been seeing more women as main characters in rural fiction in the last decade or so. That's just my my anecdotal impression. And usually these women are tough and adroit. And I'm thinking, you know, Wits already mentioned uh, Daniel Woodrell's, um, who wrote Winter's Bone. And I think of that as one example. And I, I wonder how you think the depiction of women in rural fiction has changed over time and how you imagine it might continue to evolve. Well, like I said, I have not read a whole lot of rural fiction, believe it or not. <laughs> like I said, I tend to gravitate toward like experimental writing and surrealism. And I watch a lot of horror movies and teach classes on horror movies, so I'm all over the place. But uh, I feel like uh, rural fiction will probably follow the same arc as fiction has. And the main change there is that you just have more and more women writing about women characters, which means that you're going to have less of a male gaze and more of a three-dimensional uh, character with maybe unexpected traits um, and stereotypes. And so sometimes like male writers might want to write about like a tough and sexy backwoods woman or something, but maybe a female writer would have the toughness there, but they wouldn't like present it through the same lens. I'm not saying all male writers would present it that way, but definitely bringing a female gaze uh, to the writing is, is what will probably change it. Um, and then I think there's also a hyper-awareness of feminism as a discourse and of stereotypes that you could potentially create. So all writers are constantly thinking about that. Like, oh my God, did I just write a damsel in distress scene? I have to remove that because I'm going to be, you know, criticized for it. And so it's almost like you're, 
this hyper awareness will lead you to make certain choices as you're writing. And I feel like all writers kind of have that in mind these days. And that would probably influence the way women characters are presented too. Because like you struggle not to create certain stereotypes. As I was thinking about this question, I was, I've, been, I've been watching Westworld um, like right before I go to bed, which is not, for my own mind, like that intelligent of a decision. <laughs> and the way that kind of, I mean, that is, you know, set in an imaginary West that is performatively rural. Yeah. Ruralism is escape. And then the ways that the women protagonists evolve and also comment on the like there's one moment where one protagonist sort of turns around and someone asks her how she had managed to pull something off. And she says, I imagined I was not the damsel in distress. And but yeah, sort of the way that the story begins. I don't know. So it's just it's one example that I was thinking. Of. And of course, like that's a dystopian story. Like the dystopia yeah. is maybe what makes that possible, which is also something that I, I feel like I see in I mean, in your work and in what you're saying about the ways that maybe genre is expanding some possibilities of ways to do this. Yeah, for sure. And then I feel like just hyper-awareness of genre tropes themselves kind of tie into character tropes, like you were saying with Westworld. I mean, your characters are aware of those kinds of tropes, right? Because the narrator, Butter, in in the story Hellion, uh, which was featured in Best American in 2019, you know, she, you know, says to herself, ladies sat still and tormented themselves with stiff dresses and torture chamber shoes. Ladies held their tongues when men walked among them and fixed them food and drinks. That story takes place like 30 years ago. You know, there's a, an arcade game, the, the arcade game Cubert, which came out in 1982, is mentioned, right? So you're yeah. talking about gender norms at that time. I think that that if you look at writers, uh, if you look at, I'm going to use the term writers. I mean, I'm talking like dumbasses on the right who are who are, are think tank people. We'll talk about the the South or rural places as places where traditional American values can be found, right? Yeah. And what they really mean sometimes are like, Traditional American women inhabiting traditional American roles and yeah. shutting up and doing exactly the things that your your character Hellion makes fun of. So in 30 years, is that going to be gone or are we still going to be fighting that battle? Yeah, I feel like conservatives are maintaining like a fantasy. And then on the other hand, there's their, their lived lives. Um, and so I haven't kept in touch with any of the people that I like lived, grew up with, really, unless they like took the same arc that I did. But I do have relatives that still live in rural places, and um, most of my female relatives like went to college and became teachers and moved back to the rural towns. And they uh, are definitely still expected to be mothers. They're essentialized as mothers for sure. But the whole housewife role is kind of perceived as something uh, that upper-class women do. And so middle-class rural people or... Um, working class rural people definitely perceive like um, the working woman as an ideal because it's like they have to do it to make make it work economically. Um, so you've definitely got that. You've got more women going through college and all of that. But then the, the ideal of the lady who doesn't overstep certain bounds uh, is still there. And like the idea that women shouldn't speak too frankly about like politics and that sort of thing, it's considered rude, um, is still there. Although in my family, no one is supposed to speak about politics, actually, whether you're male or female. But then, like, uh, a, a lot of my, my cousins who, like, they might teach school or something, but they also kind of pride themselves on this toughness of the rural life. Like, they know how to shoot a gun, they can grow vegetables, albeit Roundup Ready tomatoes or something, and they can ride an ATV, you know. 
drive one, etc. But uh, they definitely have a hostility toward the concept of feminism and LGBTQ culture. They consider both of those to be sort of threats to uh, what they consider to be like normal, biologically and godly ordained culture, I would say, for sure. So that even though some of them are embodying elements of feminism in their very lives, they would never, ever use that label to describe themselves. Are we still going to be doing that shit in 2050? That's what I'm, that's what concerns me. That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> oh, no, not in 2050. Oh, no, I don't, let's see, in 2050. It's like the cis-heteropatriarchy, like, totally destroyed by 2050. We've read The Handmaid's Tale. Like, imagine a southern version of The Handmaid's Tale. That, that could happen. Or the diversity. Well, the diversity of the culture, too, like, uh, that when we were talking about earlier how the demographic has changed, a lot of Southerners still think of those people as outsiders and don't realize that they're actually integrated into their society and there will come a day when the society, the society is so integrated that it will just be so changed that, um, you know, you'll have like a more multicultural Southern um, situation and definitely like in the, the far future, there may even be no concept of Southernness. <laughs> There may even be no concept of rural, you know? That's really interesting. Because, like, like little tiny farms could be surrounded by, like, gigantic industrial chicken houses or meatpacking plants or Amazon distribution centers, you know? Because a lot of those places are on the outskirts of uh, the place where I live. And, like, there is an Amazon warehouse, and, like, not too far from it are, like, little farms and things. So the very concept of rule itself is probably going to change. Yeah, and I think that in terms of these questions of identity that we're talking about, I think you're you're right to note that, I mean, some of this is about demographic change, but then also some of it is about the emergence into a more mainstream gaze of things that have always been there. Yeah, it's true. And then the very hostility with which people cling to these archaic models kind of shows that they're in, like, crisis mode, you know, because things are changing so fast that they can't deal with it, and so they cling to... Um, archaic ideas about uh, things that they might not even enact in their life, but just to sort of make themselves feel better and more in control in the rapidly changing world. Yeah. The security blanket of thinking that everything is just like you. Traditional. Um, Yeah. We've got to clean. And the traditional value is something that you have to defend at all costs or like some nightmarish culture is going to erupt that, and then conspiracy theory sort of covers all of that. <laughs> and then the way that conspiracy theory has erupted across rural landscapes, like that's really weird too. Because that's almost like magic realism or something, right? In their I feel like it's sort of like face like the more outlandish ones. <laughs> Facebook works a little bit oh, like sure. smallpox did when, you know, like it, your people are totally mm-hmm. unvaccinated and not and that's an, obviously a metaphor that works now today yeah. against the kind of ways that Facebook can transmit uh, lies and people just don't are aren't handling it well. Yeah. And then a lot of the lies that people believe like all that QAnon stuff, it's like really fantastical. Some of it sounds like stuff from Cronenberg movie or like outrageous horror movies from the 70s or something you know like the uh what is it the QAnon belief that these evil liberal satanists drink adrenochrome which is some kind of uh hormone harvested from tortured children does that not sound like something from an insane sort of horror sci-fi novel or something and actually I think it was Hunter S. Thompson who invented the term adrenochrome so 
Uh, and then you have like rural people believing these outlandish, uh, you know, fantasies. They're basically fantasies. So that's really interesting. We did an episode on conspiracy theory a while back, but I don't know that any of. Oh wow, that must uh, have we, been. Fun. Winnie did make me read a lot about QAnon, which I had pretty much purposely avoided before that. He was like, "Did you know?" And I was like, "I didn't. I was maybe okay without knowing it." Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that um, the notion of conspiracy theory and magic realism having like a significant overlap is really is really fascinating. Um, I love the idea too that, um, yeah, I mean, how much do any of these categories, rural and urban, um, the, the notion of white America and, um, Americans of color, like all of these borders are porous anyway. And like the notion of purity, um, or like sort of a clear line between any of these things is, is false anyway. So it's true. I feel like your, your vision of 2050 is, is very appealing to me, but in the meantime, um, we encourage our listeners to go out and pick up a copy of the new and improved Romy Futch, uh, published in 2015. And we're looking forward to it. Did you, did you mention that you have a new collection of stories that are maybe coming out? Or is that? Oh, no, unfortunately, uh, they're not coming out anytime soon. But I was just saying that I've, a, a lot of them have been published in literary journals. And I would say that the ratio of Southern versus non-Southern is a little uh, different from the okay. wilds. Well, we will encourage our listeners yeah. to... Not quite as to <laughs> to go and look for those uh, to read the wilds and to look for the new and improved Romy Futch. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And now we're thrilled to welcome Damaris B. Hill to the show. Damaris is the author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland, a 2020 NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Literary Work in Poetry, The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland, and Visible Textures. Hill's poetry collection, Breath Better Spent, Living Black Girlhood, is available for pre-order and is scheduled for release in January 2022. She is an associate professor of creative writing at the University of Kentucky. Welcome back to Maris. Thank you for the invitation, Whitney and Vivi. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back. It's always a great time talking to you guys. Yeah, it's a thrill to have you back with us again. Um, You were born in Charleston, West Virginia, and you got your PhD at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, just up the road. And you're a professor at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Those are all towns with a real connection to the countryside. You also grew up outside of New York in a much more populated area. So having lived in such a diversity of places, how do you think about your connection to the countryside as a writer or as a citizen? It has been much of a transition. Even though I was born in Charleston, West Virginia, I spent a lot of my time Oceanside near or on the Atlantic. Um, Before moving to Kansas, I never lived more than about five miles from the Atlantic Ocean. So to say that is to say that it was a transition. But since living in Kentucky, I have really learned to embrace and love the mountain geography as being just as welcoming as the ocean. I recognize the diversity of waves in the diversity of the trees, right? (laughs) And I've been joking with my friends, like calling myself the the sea dragon that, that climbs mountains, because that's how I see myself inhabiting this, this space now, right? Like an oceanic oriented person now embracing the landscape, geography, and cultures of a more interior space. I mean, I don't think, I think that land along coastlines can be rural. It depends on where you are, you know, particularly in the Carolinas. 
most people don't know that like the eastern shore of Maryland is very rural. In some places along the beach, they even have horses. It's that rural where wild horses exist along the Atlantic Ocean. I have experience with rural spaces, like, you know, my family being from North Carolina. Maryland can be a rural space. And even um, when I was living outside of New York in Connecticut, even though Connecticut is considered like New York metropolitan area, it's maybe 15 minutes from some very rural spaces. I think the same with New Jersey. Pennsylvania, Northern Pennsylvania can be very rural too. For sure. In this episode, we're trying to imagine what rural fiction and poetry might look like in 2050. And to do that, we're gonna have to establish what rural fiction and poetry look like today. So when I say that phrase, rural fiction and poetry, which is an odd sounding phrase, I mean, we're including, you know, it's, when I say that to you, what do you picture? You know, what writers come into your head? I imagine Amy, I imagine Gerard, I imagine Frank X. Walker, uh, Crystal Wilkinson. I imagine some people coming out of Northern New York. I imagine, of course, people in Mississippi, in Missouri, in Kansas, like Witt, and um, the Latino Writers Collective, which is like in Kansas City, right? I think about Colorado, I think about Oklahoma, A lot of the writers that are writing in the rural spaces are usually classified as Southern writers or Western writers or some larger um, geographic notion that fits in with a regionalism that may or may not express the diversity of the actual land space. And so um, as we were talking about before, like. You can drive it half an hour outside of L.A. and find yourself in a rural space. I'm so glad you, yeah, you are talking about the way that we imagine the South as rural and the North and other regions of the country as though they're entirely urban. And it's so um, revealing to talk about, I don't know, hidden urban and hidden rural spaces. I'm especially happy to hear you talk about Maryland, where I grew up. Um, Although Michigan's got a lot of empty space up there. (laughs) That's also true. Not a lot going on. Yeah, I think that for, um, yeah, for Marylanders, um, I think sort of we know about, we know about the Eastern Shore, but you don't necessarily hear folks outside talk about those parts of the state. And of course, rural spaces have always been diverse. And for a long time, the popular conception of rural life mirrored that. And Richard Wright wrote about his youth in Mississippi and Arkansas and Tennessee and Black Boy. And Langston Hughes grew up in Joplin, Missouri and Lawrence, Kansas. And frequently wrote about the Midwest, and Alice Walker wrote about growing up in rural Georgia. And yet, and yet, if you listen to someone talk about rural voters, heavy air quotes, rural voters in the 2016 or 2020 or 2022 election, you would think that every single person who lived outside of the city limits was white. So how did this change? I am unsure how it changed, but I want to begin by saying, in my opinion, which is based on history, America has never been a white nation. It's always the propaganda of white, right? So I think if we did not, as a country, have the insistent performance of white identity, that our country would probably look a lot like how Montreal looks. And some of the global features that are part of our country's city life and interior 
right? Because the most affordable places to live in the U.S. happen to be spaces that may be rural or interior. A closer examination would show that there's a wide array of different people, cultures, and um, ethnicities in these places that are marketed as white, right? Or told to be all white. I have yet to know where those places are. I think some people claim white like on the census, but I wanna say three things. One, the <laughs> most rustic place I've ever been to in my life was upstate New York. And I had to leave because it was so rustic and rural that I, I couldn't take it. I had to leave early and it was a residency, I'm so sorry. But two, one of the most diverse places that you can be is a place like Kansas, where there are many populations of Latino and indigenous people and African-American people and people from different global cultures that have been there for generations. But the third thing that I wanna say is that it is impossible for you to be in the United States for more than two generations and, and not be a little biologically diverse. So even most of the people that identify as white in the South have at least a 20% African ancestry. And if I were to do an ancestry test, I would probably have a lot more European ancestry than is documented in the census that relies on my interpretation of what my ethnicity is. I mean, isn't it possible that you talked about the propaganda of whiteness, that, that the need to talk about rural places as white, it has become more important recently because it's a reaction against the fact that you're talking about, which is that these categories are breaking down and that the, the country is becoming more diverse. And the 2020 census showed that almost every county in America is becoming more diverse, whether it's like more white people moving into black neighborhoods in some urban areas or rural areas that are becoming more diverse. I mean, that that's what's happening. And I feel like maybe some of that like insistence that the rural areas are only white is coming from people who are trying to resist the fact of change. Is that possible? I definitely believe that people are trying to resist change and the, and the, and the benefits that existed prior to the, sh or the benefits that they think may exist if a space is considered white. I definitely see that being a, a, a part of it. I, d I don't, this is so inappropriate, we might have to edit it out, but I don't know when that delusion is gonna go away. <laughs> that, that, that definitely is not a, an inappropriate thing to say on this podcast. It's, yeah, no. It's said <laughs> one way, more one way. Um, I, but I thought one other thing that I wanted to try out on you guys and see what you thought about this was like, so I do think that the period of great migration, you know, to cities was the way that made people think about rural space as being more white and, and maybe, maybe black writers as being urban quote unquote, I'm, I'm using that as a, as, as a conventional term that I don't actually agree with. Um, but if you look now in the South, you know, the South, like Georgia, for instance, that, you know, the voters of color in Georgia, there's a ton of people living there. That's becoming an extremely diverse state. And also Alabama. I recently visited Alabama and I was taking a, I didn't know that the rural population of Alabama reflected such diversity, Asian diversity, African, Pan-African diversity, um, whitish diversity. 
Because, you know, when we start getting around the Gulf, all of that is questionable. What's the difference between Cajun and Creole? Somebody explain it to me. Is it just, <laughs> is it terminology? But, like, we talk about that, that type of um, ethnic diversity being a part of, of New Orleans culture, but it's a part of Gulf culture. It's a part of American culture. Russell Banks, who's been on the show, had an essay a long time ago called The Creole, I think I don't have the title exactly right, but it's The Creolization of America. And he's saying that's one of our... That's what America is. I did an experiment about that a, a, a while ago when I was working at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. And I made a commitment for a whole semester to call all of um, the characters in the books that I was teaching American Creoles that reflected ethnic whiteness or American Creoles that reflected ethnic blackness just because I wanted to have a deeper conversation about um, American culture and about American literature that wasn't binary. I love that. That's so cool. I'm going to try that. Yeah, you should see people's faces for like the first two weeks like they, they're adjusting to that, right? Because the possibility that, that whiteness is not absolute or pure disrupts some people, not all people. Or blackness, too, if for that matter, disrupts some people. But then we get used to it. How did that change the conversation? Like, over the course of the term, what unexpected things happened as a result of you trying that? That's so interesting. I tried that experiment because we were, we were reading some Morrison. I believe we were reading um, some Gail Jones and some Octavia Butler. And I wanted to complicate the issues of ethnicity as much as these ideas of power were complicated. And um, that, that helped me. Because we can't talk about, like, for example, we can't, okay, Caricadora. I'm gonna talk about Gail Jones because I'm in Kentucky. Caricadora is a, a story of, um, power and a history of enslavement and four generations of women that that have to somehow find a way to regain themselves back after being owned for four generations. But it's also a, a story about immigration. These four black women are, are, are from Brazil. They are black women and they are from Brazil and they are coming to the States to a space like Kentucky seeking a new life and living with the legacies of bondage and slavery in their lives and how to, um, how to exist outside of that legacy. So that's just one example about how these notions of what being American is, if the default assumption of American is that it's somebody of white ethnic heritage who hasn't immigrated to the States within the past two generations, it really disrupts that. So as you're sort of talking about here, right, America has never been white. There are and always have been writers of color who write about rural life. Uh, you mentioned your colleague at the University of Kentucky, for instance, Frank X. Walker, who coined the term Afrolatia to describe black life in the Appalachians, although the fact that he needed to do that, I think, tells us something. So I'm curious to hear you talk um, a little bit more about the writers you follow who are writing about the diversity of life in rural spaces today. 
Can I talk about affirmation and his need to do that? Please. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this lately and more and more. Oh, I'm being in trouble. More and more, the publishing industry assists because it is a part of these business machines that perpetuate um, hard, fast identities that are necessary to sell products. But justice would be if we didn't have to have a term like Afrolagia. So if we could control or reverse or recondition and re-educate the effects of racism on this country, terms like Afrolagian would not even be necessary. In Breath Better Spent, I, I, and the introduction, I spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the plantation where some of my ancestors were enslaved, which is in a very rural part of North Carolina along the coast, about an hour in from Kitty Hawk, and we know Kitty Hawk is like an island. So maybe 15 to 30 minutes from the beach, definitely in the swamps. Thinking also about rural spaces and swamps and uncultivated spaces, not only were they spaces that were already diverse, but they were also, the diversity was also inspired by the need for people to seek refuge against the threats of white supremacy. So in rural North Carolina and South Carolina, many people that were brought to the country to be enslaved that decided not to be enslaved formed communities in the swamps with alligators and snakes. Many of the people who may have escaped slavery in Missouri may have sought refuge in rural spaces at the threats of coyotes, bobcats, wolves. There's that historically black town to in Kansas called Nicodemus. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's uh, kind of amazing. You know, I, th I thought of the other thing I think that people don't often recognize is that, you know, there's a history of black farming there, you know, you know, not every farmer in America is white. You know, there's lots of different kinds of people who farm. Now, there have been impediments to that. And actually, the New York Times has been writing some interesting stories about how black farmers were, you know, lost land over different times due to structural racism. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. You know, I mean, I had a character who was a black farmer in my very first novel. And, and I think that's an important part of America's agricultural heritage that often gets overlooked. That's a very important part of, uh, of, of American cultural heritage. I mean, African people and, 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 and some, some Indian and Asian people were, were brought to the United States to be an expression of um, like not only agricultural labor, but agricultural technology. So why wouldn't there be a legacy of people working in that space? Um, but I also wanted to go back to Nicodemus for a minute because it's really important that to bring Nicodemus into this conversation. And I'm sorry I didn't bring Nicodemus in earlier, but the town of Nicodemus was incorporated as a free black town in Kansas, but most of the residents actually came from Kentucky. Oh, I didn't know that. And prior to taking the job at the University of Kentucky and when I was leaving Kansas and Missouri, I did, I recorded recorded about eight oral histories that are available at the University of Kentucky Libraries Nun Center about people who were descendants from Kentucky that ended up in Kansas. 
So uh, a very well-known Kansas writer, Denise Lowe. Oh, I know Denise. She's great. She's very yeah. great. Um, I believe it was either her grandfather or her great-grandfather was a Methodist minister that left Kentucky because of their stance on slavery and actually moved to Kansas, right? And then you have a number of people who um, post-emancipation moved to the incorporated town of Nicodemus. Also, there's a strong connection because all of the rope that was produced during the Civil War and after that was west of um, Kansas, west of the Mississippi was produced in Kansas. And in addition to the horse industry, horse industry, a dominant industry in Kentucky was hemp. So the people that understood that industry found a space in Kansas, regardless of ethnicity. This whole conversation is just making me think so much of how I, how much I appreciated the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. There is, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, every sentence in that book is good. Um, there is, a, there's something that, Damaris, that you said about people escaping to swamps. And there is a moment late in that book when... Um, something happens, um, which is so startling and brilliant and, uh, heart searing that I just want to, want to mention that book in this conversation. And I also want to talk, I suspect you might have some disagreements with this. Um, but in America, um, and I'm shifting topics here in America, am I wrong to feel like our poetry is more urban than rural? I, I think of Gwendolyn Brooks or Frank O'Hara, Lucille Clifton, Who's, who's mentioned in a bound woman is a dangerous thing. And I wonder what, what your take is on that. Well, I, I want to say that the mechanisms of production are in urban spaces. It's really hard to be a writer in a rural space. In fact, um, anybody that knows my writing knows it's pretty queer. It's pretty, and not queer sexually, it's just weird all the time. But my, my agent even said to me, you're black you're a woman, you're experimental. Everybody in New York thinks that you're a no-sell. If they knew you, they would know that's not true. But it's just the assumptions about where you're placed in geography and what you're interested in that, that you, there might not be a market for your work. So I think that many of these writers that you spoke of, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lucille Clifton, who else did you mention? Frank O'Hara. Frank O'Hara. They all migrated from other places, right? Lucille Clifton, born in Buffalo, New York, went to Howard in D.C., then moved back to New York with her husband, upstate New York with her husband, before she began publishing. And then ended up living um, basically in suburban D.C., but actually taught on, on Maryland's eastern shore. That's where she spent her academic career, um, at St. Mary's College. She also um, worked at UC Santa Cruz. And, you know, I often um, fantasize about her, Angela Davis, and Gloria Kasha Hall being in the same place at once and all of the jokes that were happening in 1984 as Reagan was entering the White House and those three women were in California taking over. I think American writers have always been migratory writers, and that's just a part of the experience that we deny because it, it works well for regionalism. 
I love that term migratory riders. I'm going to use that too. I really hadn't thought of that. That's really cool. That is right. I like that. And I think you're point about marketing is so well taken, right, that um, you're talking about the mechanisms of production being in urban spaces. And also, you were talking before about performance, like the mechanisms, so many of the mechanisms of performance are in urban centers. I also feel like here you're saying a little bit that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like if you have grown up in a quote-unquote rural place um, and you want to be a writer, you are more likely to have had that experience of migration or displacement, perhaps. Um, And so maybe that's part of American rural literature, in a way, it isn't automatically with, quote unquote, like urban or, or the literature of cities or the literature of writers who have grown up in cities. I mean, of course, there are exceptions to this vague generalization that I'm making. And there, there's also an opportunity, I think, for a different type of nurturing if you live outside a metropolitan area. Oh, for sure. And that nurturing, for example, in Kentucky, people assume that a lot of my students maybe uh, less literate because they're Appalachian or Appalachian. And I quickly assure them that that is not the case. Even if there's a student that doesn't like literature, classical canonical literature, the oral tradition here is so strong that nearly every student I encounter, they are great storytellers. I don't have to instruct them about the tools of imagination or the journey of a protagonist because these are skills that have been nurtured within them, probably from, you know, their parents or their grandparents or their aunts and uncles in rural spaces that tell stories as a pastime. So the nurturing is different and, dare I say, sometimes richer. All right, so the time has come for predictions. What do you think poetry and fiction and nonfiction set in rural areas will look like in 2050? The same thing I think America will look like in 2050. This generation of people, they're really good at being aware. And what I mean, like these, these fresh adult, adults here, like these, these generations, are they Zs? Are they new, new millennials? I don't know what we're calling them right now. I'm officially an old person. But these people born after 2000, one of their superpowers is being aware. And I think they'll, they'll be less inclined to embrace the propaganda of either a dominant ethnic identity as white or as a monolithic space. I think they're altogether gonna reject that. They may even, I predict that they may even reject identity as we know it because their entire um, cultural nurturing probably been like 70% digital. And so there's a lot of subgenre or subgenre identity identification that means a lot more to them than simply sex, race, class, sexual orientation and gender. It just means a lot more to them to be a gamer, right? <laughs> or I'm a digital artist, I'm an influencer. Like those are, you know, those are the identities that they're clinging to. That's an interesting way to imagine the future. But it will be far more ethnically diverse than we understand it to be now. You are the final judge for the inaugural Maya Angelou Book Award, and the winner was just announced last night at the Writers for Readers Benefit that Witt hosts in Kansas City, and you had five amazing finalists to judge. John Murillo for Contemporary American Poetry, Kaveh Akbar for Pilgrim Bell, Natalie Diaz for Postcolonial Love Poem, 
Shane McRae for Sometimes I Never Suffered, and Threa Almonteser for The Wild Fox of Yemen. I'm curious what those books tell you about what American poetry, rural or urban, will look like again in 2050. First of all, they were all amazing. And that was like some of the hardest work that I have ever done, probably in my professional life. It was just so difficult to choose a winner because all of the books were exceptional for different reasons and sometimes the reasons overlapped. So I think uh, those selections were an articulation about what the literary landscape in rural America is going to look like. Only one of those books was urban at best. I think all of those books were juggling with a theme that negates identity and um, regionalism. And it's this idea about what what is home and what is home to me and how those ideas of 